Hi everyone, this is Anne Doherty. Today's podcast sits at the intersection of energy efficiency, uh, geographic mapping or GIS, and social justice. For our audience out there, this conversation was inspired by last month's article in the New York Times by Nadja Popovich and Brad Plummer uh, on the after effects of redlining on urban heat. And as soon as this piece came out, several folks on our team immediately took to our Slack discussion threads, our internal messaging, and started posting and, and discussing the impacts of this and the value of, of this imagery and really painting a picture of uh, equity and the longstanding effects of redlining. After all, redlining is the practice of denying borrowers access to credit based on their locations of their properties in economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. And this has, for the most part, really fallen also along racial lines in the United States and has far-reaching effects that are still seen today as illustrated in the article. From increased urban temperatures to some of the topics we covered in our last webinar, where we discussed the impacts of um, redlining practices on um, the ability of a homeowner, for example, to implement energy efficiency measures and issues related to low quality housing. Perhaps what makes redlining so interesting and egregious and difficult to tackle is really that it's hard to um, think through the ways in which uh, the practice was at once so racist and the language um, used to reference and codify property assignments so problematic that um, it's difficult to think about its effects as still lingering, that in some ways they're, they're very much with us today. But if there is a silver lining, it's that we're able to have these conversations in a context of restorative justice, that we're in a place right now where we can think about these consequences or the consequences of these practices as having a long reach into the future and think about how to resolve those as researchers, consultants, and energy practitioners um, really committed to thinking about who we serve and how we serve people in a just energy transition, tackling topics like this are really important to us. So having said that, let's go ahead and jump into the discussion. Hi everyone, this is Ann Doherty, and on this episode of Current, we're joined by University of Arizona Assistant Professor of Planning and Sustainable Built Environments in the School of Landscape, Architecture, and Planning, Dr. Ladd Keith. Dr. Keith holds a PhD in Arid Resource Sciences and a Master's of Science in Planning from the University of Arizona. And we're also joined by a Loom consultant, Amanda Moss, who is a graduate of the School of Landscape, Architecture, and Planning at the University of Arizona and holds a master's of science in urban planning and a bachelor's of science in sustainable built environments with an emphasis in sustainable communities. So thank you both for being here. Thanks for uh, having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm excited to connect. So we have a pretty heavy topic, so I'm gonna go ahead and jump right in. Um, we'll start with you, Dr. Keith. You know, before we get too much into this conversation, it's probably worth having you share a little bit with our audience about yourself and your role as a research professor at the University of Arizona. Great, yeah, again, so I'm an assistant professor in planning and chair of the Sustainable Built Environments Program at the University of Arizona. And my research area is really at the intersection between climate science and urban planning. So I, in particular, explore how cities can become more sustainable and resilient um, through climate action planning. And a topic that I've been focused quite a bit on recently is looking at extreme heat, um, which is a really interesting climate risk. 
because it has less existing uh, planning and governance structures than other climate risks like drought, sea level rise, or wildfires. So it's really coming into the public forefront. That's really interesting. Uh, one of our recent panelists um, informed us that extreme heat is actually the most the leading cause of death among climate events. If you factor things in, it's not as we don't think of it that way because it's not as dramatic as, say, a hurricane, for example, but that yeah. certainly um, can be quite devastating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Amanda, um, you've been a part of some really interesting GIS projects at Illum, so I think maybe you should tell our audience what GIS is, what that work involves. But also, um, we'd love to hear if there are any that stand out to you and what you've learned about the ways that utilities are using these tools to think about um, value that they're providing to their customers and, and how that might intersect with planning. Yeah, so GIS uh, often, we just, when we think of GIS, we're often thinking of mapping and it, it really gets into a lot more spatial analysis and um, can take a lot of different forms. It's a, it's a big, it's a big area um, as far as research and analysis and it's really a powerful tool. Um, which I think we can see in that New York Times article and the messages that it can convey and um, what you can produce through uh, GIS type analysis um, and communicating a story. Um, as far as a lot of the work that we've done here at Illum and what I've seen and been part of is really uh, involved contextualizing the participation in utilities energy efficiency programs, um, as well as identifying areas for uh, high potential of savings or like what are the communities where um, utilities could engage more and have, see a lot of savings from. Um, and then another is just really understanding who the customer, uh, who the customers are in a, a utilities uh, territory. Uh, so you're looking at kind of geographical distribution, but also the demographics of those and how those overlay with one another. And that can uh, help to inform utilities a lot with uh, their program design and engagement and how those are being delivered. Um, I, I think one kind of to that last point, uh, I, I wanted to acknowledge that uh, one of our managing directors, Lisa Aubert, uh, she kind of coined this phrase, energy efficiency deserts, which is, you know, it was a riff and inspired from the idea of food deserts, um, where there's just these gaps in uh, service or gaps in food for the food deserts like grocery stores. Um, and then, you know, in our industry, the gaps in energy efficiency. So where participation in utility programs is, uh, is, is lacking perhaps, or is, is being missed, or where there are missed opportunities. And, uh, you know, and what we generally see in some of the mapping exercises that we've done um, is that those energy uh, efficiency districts, similar to food, de food deserts, energy efficiency deserts, and like food deserts, tend to exist in areas where there's populations that are typically have been mar marginalized. And uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunity when we're looking at um, how to engage, hard to reach customers a bit more. It's a really um, interesting point. I remember when um, Lisa brought that work forward and the idea forward, and we were also excited to see the results. And in some ways, they were what we expected, but it, this, there's a quality to mapping that makes the outcomes so obvious and so plain, and I think are easy to communicate to stakeholders and other actors. Um, who may or may, may or may not be attuned to some of these challenges, which um, 
speaks a lot to the the article in the New York Times and this powerful nature of um, overlaying of redlining practices with um, heat island effects and other things uh, that are impact um, traditionally marginalized communities. So Dr. Keith, I know you work on this professionally, but you also sit on the Tucson Mayor uh, Marino Romero's Climate Action Advisory Council. And before that, you were appointed as a planning commissioner for eight years with the city of Tucson. You know, as someone who really spends his life and career researching cities and sustainable built environments, how did you react to this piece when you saw it? Um, and what were some of your first thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, unfortunately, I was not surprised by the article at all. Um, a couple of papers most uh, recently this year have come out. Um, one that the article uh, drew from the Jeremy Hoffman and Vivek Chanda's paper, but then there was another paper by Bev Wilson at the University of Virginia that laid out a similar case. And um, it's good to have more evidence um, from this research and from that New York Times articles that really does show in a concrete way how minority uh, low-income populations and marginalized communities are really the most vulnerable um, for extreme heat risk. And I would say we see the same trends, unfortunately, even in the city of Tucson. Um, if you look at our urban heat island map, the south side of the city, um, which has a, same, a relatively similar um, housing density to Midtown, is one of the hottest areas of the city. And that's for a lot of reasons. Um, less public investment in the urban green space and um, a higher percentage of homes that are renter occupied and maybe get less investment than homer, homeowner occupied um, areas. So, so unfortunately not very surprised, but it was, um, it was a very nicely done piece and both kind of graphically laid it out um, for, for a general audience and then also did a nice job kind of of writing it up and showing the human side of it too. Yeah, it's really um, compelling to think about the legacy of these historic processes, right? I mean, I think it's easy often for people to forget that there's a long tail to some of these practices. And even though they're technically illegal at this point, um, they, um, they still exist, right? They're still with us in these really powerful and um, troubling ways in, the, in this case. Uh, Amanda, I'd really love your reaction to this piece as well. Redlining, after all, could not have existed in some ways without the use of maps themselves. And as someone who relies on the maps as uh, a tool to discover information, to kind of bring forward insights, what are your thoughts as you saw some of those original maps from the 1930s kind of digitally layered on top of urban heat maps of today? Well, yeah, unfortunately, uh, like that, I was not really surprised by the article and what it was presenting. Um, and but you know specifically to what they produced and what they were able to sh tell with those uh, with those maps uh, overlaid uh, was really an admiration for the quality and clarity of what they produced. And that I was really happy that somebody had pieced these different topics together in such uh, a digestible uh, way. Because I think um, and my I think. One thing that really struck me is that it can be really tough or what i've you know experienced recently is that it can be really tough for people with um privilege to understand and conceptualize how inequities um play out in the world and what are the lasting impact to your point just now um what how those policies and decisions play out for a very very long time and i think you know the article really did an excellent job of that and um, and I, and I, I want to like go and emphasize the quality of these maps and like how good the analysis was and that because um, 
maps can be like these are again these really impactful data visualization tools and you know if they're done well you can have fantastic discussions like these but then um, there's also a lot of opportunity for maps to be misleading and misused and you know we, this is a great case of them of redlining it being a great example of how they've been misused um, but I also think that you know when we as you know, consultants and researchers need to be very mindful um, when we're uh, putting something in a map because mapping tools have become far more accessible to folks um, but you know with great power comes great responsibility and um, trying to understand what we're displaying and how we're displaying it so that that information doesn't get misconstrued and misused um, and, and so I think that they did a really great job of constraining that and demonstrating high quality. Mm -hmm. As you know, it's been interesting watching the New York Times pivot since George Floyd's murder in terms of their coverage and content and a lot of the topics that they've taken on have been really uh, powerful of late, uh, I think, in, in addressing the social moment as we, we all attempt to contend with, um, you know, longstanding forms of racial injustice in our country. One of the things that really struck me um, at our webinar, which we referenced in the um, introduction, was uh, Eric Arnold, one of our clients at Georgia Power, uh, was talking about his own experience of just, you know, living in Atlanta and seeing essentially the same street carrying two different names, which are remnants of what he said was the red line. And, um, and that there is this common knowledge among community members in Atlanta that that, that is the red line in a sense, that it's, it's still again with us culturally in that way. And um, the compelling thing that he brought forward that I thought was really interesting was how those, um, those differences in lending practices and access to um, home ownership have really compounded uh, disparities in housing quality, housing stock, which points in a lot of ways to one's resiliency as well um, within um, a heat, um, you know, extreme heat event. Lad, um, going a little bit um, to the left of or off um, of the topic that I was going to move you to, do you and your work look at um, the resiliency of the buildings themselves at all, the extent to which um, housing stock. So we were thinking about the natural environment, green spaces as sort of creating resilient environments, but housing stock or buildings and playing a role in um, a community's ability to um, weather, no pun intended, uh, extreme heat events. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm really interested in kind of the emerging governance structure for extreme heat, um, not just in the kind of planning built environment realm, but also how that intersects with um, other things like housing stock and um, that's particularly of importance in um, older cities um, back east, in particular, that are kind of facing the uh, rising temperatures as well. Um, but absolutely, it's a it's a concern for um, those residents that may have uh, no air conditioning or they may have like less efficient homes. And so, I think we're still grappling as researchers with how to kind of understand that in a mapping way um, and still get the right information. And certainly. Um, because we're just starting to look into that on the research side, it hasn't trickled down into practice yet. But I think that's kind of the forefront and what's next for extreme heat. That's really interesting. You know, um, in a recent Arizona public media story that you were in, you said that climate change will mean hotter cities, but it won't necessarily mean that cities like Tucson or Phoenix will become completely unlivable, which is interesting to sit with because you think of these like very livable 
climates or what we used to think of as very livable climates, like in California, for example, that are experiencing extreme weather events, including droughts and um, extreme heat, as well as, uh, as you know, I don't need to say, fires. Um, so what is it um, specifically about our arid climates that we need to be considering in the next five to 10 years? And um, how is that different than other parts of the West as we start to grapple with these changes? Yeah, so the Southwest is certainly home to many of the fastest warming cities in the United States, but that's both because of growing populations and kind of continued development patterns that tend to increase the urban heat island effect, um, as well as climate change just increasing those average temperatures year over year. So unfortunately, <clears throat> I think the 2020 summer with its kind of record-breaking heat that was sustained is very consistent with what we'll see in the future. And so kind of increased heat waves, increased duration, increased um, intensity. And unfortunately, the nighttime temperatures are rising too, which really has some dramatic um, public health impacts if people can't have their bodies kind of go below that 80 degree threshold that they need to rest. Um, but yeah, but I think to, to what you referenced, um, it absolutely does not mean that the Southwest will become unlivable. And it's kind of one of those sensational stories that you see play out whether it's Miami kind of being completely flooded and disappearing or, you know, Phoenix being the city that will be so hot that it'll be completely evacuated. <clears throat> I think I give her, I give us much more credit for being a little bit more resilient than that. So I think we have a choice to make in, in how we plan cities. Um, you know, it's not set in stone and we can absolutely change the way that we're um, planning cities and we are um, to be both uh, more resilient as far as uh, reducing those um, urban heat island uh, factors that increase the heat in cities just through the way that we plan the built environment, but also by reducing greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, all the things that cities have been focused on with increasing density and increasing walkability will um, continue to help that. It's um, reassuring to hear, and I, I think in these moments, optimism is, is important because you do want a reason to keep working at the problem, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I would say, I would say too, the, the important thing is regardless of what else is going on in the world, um, you know, cities still have control over how they develop. And I think that's something that you see cities really taking, you know, taking um, within their power because it's one of the tools that they have. And so I think at the local level, we can still do quite a bit of good. So, yeah, that's great. I, and I think you're right. I mean, it's, and it is, a, you know, a moment for local government. We are in an earlier, um, podcast, we were discussing how uh, with, you know, COVID-19 and the pandemic, we're suddenly looking to our local officials in ways that we never had before. So we're paying attention, for example, to our mayor in Tucson when our state guidance was unclear, you know, and looking for a leadership in places where um, we uh, feel like we can have more of an impact and, and affect more change. And, um, Amanda, I want, I want to raise a question for you and then I'll bring it back um, to Dr. Keith as well. But the New York Times piece uh, on redlining made a reference to the fact that despite our best intentions, a lot of our investments in low-income neighborhoods with a goal of attempting to curb the heat island effect could really spur um, processes of gentrification. And uh, simply because as we add green spaces, as we improve the quality of the built environment, they become more desirable spaces and are often looked to as places for investment. And as I understand it, last week you were a panelist in a community conversation around a similar topic. What are some considerations for cities and developers um, that we, we should be thinking about or those that are listening 
should be thinking about to not displace communities that have already endured so much in our efforts to um, mitigate some of these effects. Yeah, um, I think this is, this feels very fresh right now because of these conversations that are going on in the city. And, um, and I, I guess I kind of the way I'm landing with it is that, you know, similar to what we've been talking a lot in the utility world is about like reimagining what the 21st century utility looks like. What are your utility programs going to look like when they're not, you know, uh, buoyed up by lighting measures and um, reimagining what cost benefit analysis and evaluation frameworks are to ca really capture like the true externalities of our programs, both the positive and the negative ones. And, um, or just, you know, decisions of utilities and we are making as evaluators. Um, so I think that like reimagining framework and is, is also going to be really essential for all the other areas for community and, and our local governments, because, you know, I think as Lad pointed out that, um, you know, the really a strong tool and the biggest and strongest toolbox tool in city's toolboxes are, you know, their control over how development occurs and where it happens. And I know there's a lot of caveats on what cities are able to ask for and do, but um, I think something that I think is often forgotten is that cities aren't, or re, cities seem to approach problems like they're really fragile and that if they don't get every development that you know, comes at the door, knocking at the door, then uh, they might disappear. And I think that we see that that, we actually in fact have case studies of how that isn't the case. And I think Detroit is maybe the one that always comes to mind for me that you can have a city that really gets devastated economically and can come back and grow and develop in new ways that is, helps to really strengthen the community and the quality of life for some of the community members. And so I think for me, um, trying to, what I see is cities needing to take kind of adjust and focus on is how do we make that apply that livability and appeal to all community all areas of the community so it's not just getting resources aren't just getting pooled um, and acknowledging that you don't have to necessarily give kind of make certain sacrifices that might result in um, either shortcomings and funding that will limit services that cities are able to provide. Um, and because there's intrinsic value into the investments that we're doing. And I think that what I've heard a lot in our community is that some people feel like our social contract has been broken when um, we've made investments, uh, like big investments in infrastructure, uh, like the streetcar in downtown Tucson. And, and then, you know, but then at the same time, schools are still being underfunded and a lot of different our public schools are being underfunded in this community and so to see some of the decisions that are being made and deals that are being made is has been a hard thing for our community to, to um, digest and to sit with um, and i think a lot of it also has to do with making sure that all the community members are at the table and are at the table early and often and that what they're what they're asking for is baked into the process and not just kind of at the whim of whether a government official or a developer is willing to, you know, engage with them and provide certain concessions. Um, it's, if, if, if we want to really develop more in a really a resilient way that is inclusive and kind of shift some of the burden off of uh, communities that have endured so much already, um, then uh, that's, I think, a really just basic place where we have to start where we have to start. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's, it's raising such interesting points. And I think there's this way that um, it, it feels, or at least I hope that we're at an inflection point with respect to development, that sustainable development really is the only development that we can afford to, to have in this moment. Um, because I, I think all powers that be recognize to some extent that we need to have a healthy population to serve these businesses and these economic interests in the most, to put it as cynically as possible, but also that it matters to have communities that are, are well and in all ways. Um, Dr. Keith, last year you led an Urban Land Institute panel that toured downtown Miami's vulnerable areas and observed that the city is really making some changes with respect to um, becoming more resilient and building um, stronger communities in face of climate change. What did you see that was inspiring there? And, and what are other cities doing that might provide us some guidance as to how to reimagine this as we move forward? Yeah, absolutely. That was a fun panel. We had um, a range of like coastal engineers and an architect and a real estate developer and a planner. So a whole range of different disciplines kind of um, that you would want to have kind of looking at this um, really important issue of urban waterfront resilience. And so mm -hmm. I'd say kind of regardless of the climate impact that you're asking about, there's never a single silver bullet, which is, you know, disappointing for politicians and the community. Um, but we really recommended in that specific case something, um, a range of kind of a range of tools, a range of um, strategies that a lot of other um, communities are looking at. So living shorelines was a big thing, um, which actually goes against kind of fundamentally what the Army Corps of Engineers is looking to do, where they may, may actually raise um, kind of hardscaped walls and um, cut off Miami from the very ocean that um, kind of fuels a lot of its economic um, prosperity right now. So we really um, tried to get them to think a little bit differently about the potential for kind of reinvesting in mangroves and living shorelines. And also really looking at um, increasing the social programs and emergency response initiatives, um, particularly again for those marginalized communities um, that are benefiting the same way from that development that's occurring. I think one of the trickier things that we touched on quite a bit was the idea of managed retreat and they still have so much investment going in directly along the shoreline. So we really uh, talked about a range of strategies that they could do like using development transfer tools to help kind of intentionally redirect some of that high-end development um, to higher ground. And of course that higher ground is also the place in the city where there's been uh, lower income populations living for decades. And so um, kind of as we talked about that, we said, um, you know, they have to also make sure that that they take uh, climate gentrification into, um, into account and ensure that if they do shift that development away from the shoreline, um, you know, the most vulnerable place in the city, that they have to absolutely protect the existing residents and ensure a fair amount of workforce or affordable housing in those um, kind of new, more attractive locations going forward. So um, it's, it's very interesting though. One of the, one of my favorite stories from that panel was that we um, interviewed a range of community members and um, some of the folks we talked to were involved in the urban forestry efforts for Miami. And they told us the story about how there's a Haitian neighborhood that had a high, really high, uh, high uh, percentage of the population was, you know, uh, very recently from Haiti and kind of had deep cultural roots from there. So they were trying to do a good thing, increase the green infrastructure, increase urban forestry, um, all the things that cities are looking at. And they were planting a specific species of tree that the residents kept pulling out and throwing um, away on the outside um, kind of boundaries of the neighborhood. So I guess these urban forestry um, advocates 
finally went in and asked the neighbors, like, why don't you like this tree? It's good. It, you know, gives you shade and decreases runoff. And the, uh, the Haitian residents basically told them, you know, this tree um, in our culture represents a tree that can uh, collect and attract evil spirits. And so, <laughs> so you know, these urban foresters um, were like, okay, well, that's, that was absolutely not our intent. So they brought in a different tree species that had the same environmental benefits and the neighborhood was absolutely fine with it. So I think it just goes to speak that, you know, you really need to talk to residents even with best intentions. Um, there's just so many cultural issues and just, um, just to get their input about these things that are sometimes very well intentioned, so. That's a really interesting and, and great story. And it just underscores a theme that's been running through all of our conversations this um, this year, really, which is, you know, increased community engagement and um, representation in planning and um, be it in program design or urban planning in your absence or urban forestry, as well as, um, you know, any number of like legislative initiatives to make sure those voices are represented, you know, the, the voices who we are planning for, you know, are represented um, at the table so that they are active participants in, in that process, which is so critically important. Because I think as we all know, um, some of our loudest voices are most economically privileged, you know, in these spaces. And it's important that we are really intentional in inviting others who are deeply impacted um, to the table. Um, you know, as you're kind of stepping back from this conversation and thinking about some of the, the challenges that lie ahead, what do you think is the most important thing to be thinking about as we're entering um, 2021? What's, what's top of mind for you both? Uh, Dr. Keith, let's start with you and then Amanda, I'll let you close it out. I think there's just so much uncertainty right now, and certainly I work with cities across the country on a range of, um, you know, again, climate change issues, and, you know, they're facing potential economic um, shocks to the city. They're still de dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, but then, you know, there's the ongoing racial injustice and uncertainty about the direction our federal government's going to take. So I think uncertainty is the number one um, kind of thing that everyone's grappling with. Um, so kind of like looking at that as the frame, as the framing of kind of 2020, um, regardless of who wins the election, regardless of a lot of the other stuff, um, it really, what really matters is like what we can do kind of at our personal professional levels. And again, I think cities are just in such a, an important place right now in history where um, we still have control over our local elections and, you know, our local politicians do answer to their residents and do answer to their um, elect, you know, their, uh, their voters. And so I think, um, you know, looking at cities as a potential solution to a lot of these problems is just such an important thing right now more than ever. That's great. Amanda, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I really echo a lot of what Vlad has already laid out. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm excited about some of the things I'm seeing in our city um, in Tucson, um, especially kind of led by uh, council member Santa Cruz and trying to push, you know, even when we don't have to engage the, you know, the community, let's, let's still set up some meetings and start to present this information and just do that due diligence and show that transparency. Because um, you get a lot of great information that way and also can kind of cut off any concerns and correct any concerns that community members might be having because they just don't have all the information. And so having those dialogues, I think, is, uh, is really essential. And I, I think, you know, what I've seen is that there does seem to be like a, 
something that I'm finding hopeful is there is like an energy that's coming out and, and especially in our community here in Tucson, people are turning up and people are showing up and they're, they're, they're wanting to, they're wanting to help and they're wanting to help kind of create a better community that's safer for all, all folks. And, um, and so I think leaning into that and taking advantage of the resources that people are providing. And I don't know. So I guess that's maybe not a vision for 2020, but it's just like maybe my hope that I'm taking into it because yeah, I think there is a lot of uncertainty, but the small change we can make here is key. Well, I think that's important to sit with because it, in these moments, and I, I can't think of a moment in my life where I felt sort of less certain I don't know about you guys, but it's, I think, important in these moments to focus on, as you said, like our locus of control, what we can impact and the change that we can affect as, as individuals and, um, and really, uh, for lack of a better term, lean into that and, and embrace those spaces. Um, and uh, Dr. Keith, as you said, our local governments and our local communities, because it's really, I think if... Um, if uh, COVID-19 didn't underscore this, I, you know, we have to think globally, act locally in order to resolve some of these challenges. Uh, it's been really wonderful to talk to you both. And um, thank you for joining us today. I know we started with a discussion on redlining and heat island effects, um, but you know, it evolved to so much more and I really appreciate you taking the time to connect. So thank you so much. and. Um, we look forward to hopefully having a second version of this conversation at some point in the future. Great. Thanks so much for having us on, Anne. Yeah, thanks. This is Anne Doherty, and you're listening to Current. Current is produced by Illum's production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.